Back in the fur shed, this is the Trapping Today podcast, and I'm Jeremiah Wood. Great to be here, great to have you here. It is a terrible, terrible day to be outside, which means it's a great day to be in the fur shed. It is early September, we get about 50 degrees north wind and steady, slow, steady rain all day. So I've been in here working on traps. Uh, I've been making wax dirt that I neglected to make when it was 80 degrees in the middle of the summer. I had other things going on, so I'm making it on the stovetop here, just getting uh, getting some done. I've been adding swivels and chain to some of my traps, getting tags on them, and over by the bench swagger, I've been making a bunch of uh, cable stakes. So that's been kind of several of today's projects. And I got a nice interview for you tonight in the podcast, but I have several topics to discuss before that. But we're going to get into a a talk we had with J.P. Wilson down at uh, Olson's Trappers Weekend. So that was a lot of fun. Nice long conversation we had one evening by a campfire. And uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into part of that tonight. A few topics first. The podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, and I want to thank those guys for continuing to support the podcast. I actually made another order on Sunday, I believe it was, and it was shipped out on Monday, and I just got it yesterday. So great service from those guys again. Um, um, got some more MB550s, got some flake wax, I got some J-hooks, and several other, a few other things just to kind of round out what I was a little short on. So that was great. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. That's where you find Cots Bros. Order from that website. It is very easy to use. Just use that search bar. You can browse different things. You can check out their clearances and specials. Or you can just go to the search bar and type in what you want to find. And you'll pop up with a bunch of search results. And you can shop that way. So if you, like for me, if I really know what I want to get, I go right to the search bar. If I don't know what I want to get, maybe I'll browse a little bit. And I always check the clearances, see what's there. Kellen had a bottle of, I picked up a bottle of his 99 Coyotes. That is a special lure that he made last year, I believe. And uh, he has a limited supply of that. So I I picked some of that up to try. And uh, you never know what you're going to find there in the clearances. But it's pretty cool. If you order regularly, you create an account and you earn points for every order you place. So... I just made a big order previously, and I had, I think, like 25, 25 or $30 worth of points that I was able to apply for this order. So basically, I got free shipping. I think it was 20 or $21 for shipping for order over $200. Of course, DVDs are a lot cheaper. Books are a lot cheaper to ship. But that was really awesome. So I took advantage of that and also real fast service and great prices. Thanks, Cots Bros podcast is also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction Incorporated. If you are looking for a place to send fur this year, why don't you try out Fur Harvesters? It's going to be an interesting year in the fur market. I actually want to talk to Kyle Kotz here coming up sometime soon about the fur market and any, you know, recent developments that have been going on. But in general, we're still working through that wall of ranch mink. The uh, supply is coming down. The demand remains low for most fur items, uh, ranch mink, as well as any wild fur that tends to follow the price of ranch mink, like muskrat, wild mink, 
uh, beaver, otter. Those things are going to continue to be low, but it appears that we've hit a bottom. So hate to, to call it just yet. I think for the past few years I've been talking just based on things that I'd been hearing from other people and just observing and seeing how this whole supply and demand thing plays out. I had been predicting that uh, we'd hit a bottom and start to turn back around sometime around 2020. So we're fall of 2019. We're going to hit the 2021 selling season this year or this coming season. So uh, this is when we, we uh, probably stay flat and maybe start to see some increases if if we don't have any major changes um, in, in things overseas and, and here in the U.S. with the economy. We'll see what happens. But anyway, uh, fur harvesters is a great place. These guys are trappers. They work hard uh, to get your fur put together in good, nice lots, uniform lots, and uh, advertised to buyers around the world. Get a bunch of buyers together in an auction room and get them to bid and, and, and try to get the most value for that fur. So uh, the auction is a great place. They, they uh, provide a very valuable service, in my opinion, to trappers. And I think we should utilize that. And, and also, they're supporting the podcast. So, uh, so you know, if you're not undecided on where to send your fur, maybe just try out fur harvesters and thank them for supporting this podcast. So some topics to get into the uh, the canine extreme junior traps. I've been talking about the pan tension issues for a couple weeks now on those traps. And what I ended up doing, I played around and played around. Again, the reason that I buy a high-end trap is to not have to tool around with it and make adjustments. So uh, that was a little bit frustrating, but they are a great trap. The way that I dealt with things is I actually ended up pulling two of the coil springs off of those four coiled traps and running them as two coils. In addition to two coiling those, I did a bunch of filing on the uh, on the pan and the pan catch. And I buffed off, I used a Dremel tool and buffed off that uh, coating that the traps come with uh, on those areas where the, uh, the pan kind of makes a connection with, with that block. And in addition to the filing and the buffing, I waxed that with bowstring wax. So the combination of two coil, bowstring wax, and filing, I was able to get them to around three and a quarter, three and a half pounds pan tension on average. And I think with a little more filing, I could get that down even more. So uh, I got them to the point where I was happy with, uh, with where they're at coming into this coyote trapping season and fox trapping season. And I've got half a dozen of those. I'm going to use them. But I was going to order another half dozen. I decided instead uh, to order MB550s. So uh, so that's why I picked those an extra dozen of those up from Cots Brothers. And I'm going to run those. So lots of MB550s and some some uh, Canine Extreme Juniors and a few other random traps uh, for my coyote line. A couple of things that I've been looking at recently... I actually, it's funny, you know, I have Kellen Kotz's Flat Set Fix, and I have his book, Black Book of Coyote Trapping, and it's amazing how many times I kind of go back to those just to see if I can pick up a few extra things here and there. And uh, in the background, I've been watching the Flat Set Fix kind of in the background, just, just kind of listening to what Kellen's saying and looking up at the screen once in a while while I'm tinkering with traps or whatever. And the other night, I just sat down on the couch for about 15-20 minutes and I watched a portion of it right straight through with my full attention 
and that was good. I picked up more stuff there. So uh, there was a lot there, and I just kind of keep coming back to that DVD. So it's a good resource for you if you want to pick up some small tips and tricks on to use on your line, as well as the black book. I'm I'm going back to that constantly. Just hey, I wonder what Kellen thinks about this. Right? I ran into an issue or something that I'm, you know, I'm not sure uh, what to do. How should I handle uh, pan covers? Or, you know, should I not use pan covers? What should I use? Oh, let's go back to the black book. Kellen's got a lot of experience. How does he do it? What does he think? And I make a decision based on that. So it's a it's a good resource. The other DVD that I've been watching and I've watched a couple times straight through is from Mike Gursky, and it's called Canadian Trapline Adventure. This is a DVD that was filmed in uh, 2004 I believe Alan Probst filmed it the guy that does F&T's North American Trapper and uh, Schmidt Enterprises distributes the DVD and it's following Mike along his uh, his trap line in Canada in in targeting a bunch of species that uh, they they can trap for there in uh, in the north country I'm not sure what Mike is doing now, but at the time he was an avid trapper and in the late 90s he started a company called Ram Connection. He was selling Ram Power Snares and a bunch of other trapping supplies through mail order business. Um, I don't, he doesn't have a website that I could find and haven't heard anything since, so I don't know if he's still in the business or not. But this is a really neat DVD to watch, especially if you're like me and you've never trapped up in that northern Canada or Alaska country and you're really interested in doing so. I, I thought it would be good to get a little exposure to uh, some of that trap line uh, and those trap lines and kind of the things, the ways that guys like Mike Gursky catch fur. So he has had a line where he targeted uh, a wide variety of species from water, water species to marten, fisher, uh, wolf, Wolverine, Lynx, a whole pile of different critters. So that was a, a really interesting DVD. He did, he trapped on the pickup truck, on snowmobile. He went through, uh, trapped out of a, a cabin, and and had a you know it was it was a little mini adventure. It was fun to watch. So that's called Canadian Trapline Adventure. You can get that from a number of different trapping supply companies. I think I got mine from our friends over at PCS Outdoors. Um, so that's that. And the other northern thing that I've been into lately is the Alaskan Trapper's Handbook, written by Dean Wilson. This was written quite a long time ago. Uh, Dean is no longer with us, but he was a legendary Alaska trapper and fur buyer. And he, he did such a great job with this book. I just finished it the other day. I've been reading a little bit of it every night before bed, trying to sort of... Uh, pick up as much information as I can and he Dean gave a really good overview of Alaskan trapping for an outsider who doesn't have the background in it he talked about the climate the conditions the gear that you need uh, how to how to get on and start a trap line uh, one of the things that he said is uh, you don't uh, trap lines, long lines are not just, you don't just go into an area and have a long line. Long lines are built through hard work over the years and lots of cutting of trails. And, and if you have a long line in Alaska and you didn't buy it from someone, you built it over a long period of time and a lot of work. He talked about the traps to use, all the different gear and equipment, 
talked about clothing, cold weather clothing, and what works and what doesn't. Uh, he talked about lures, and then he went into individual species and how to trap each of those species. He covered uh, marten, wolverine, lynx, uh, wolves. I think wolves were his specialty for a long time. He was a really, really well, well-known and accomplished wolf trapper. So he went over everything, and uh, it's a it's a really good introduction. It's 96 pages, but the the print is so small and single spaced. It's really like uh, it, it's like a really a 180 or 200 page book in reality. So that's Dean Wilson's Alaskan Trapper's Handbook. I got mine uh, from F and T Fur Harvesters Trading Post. Now I had a couple of interesting emails this week. One of them was from Kristen. Kristen had asked about, you know, she was getting into trapping for the first time, asked about a place to work up fur, which we talked about in the last episode. And now she is doing a very wise thing. She picked up a copy of Mitchell Ricketts' Muskrat Trapper's Guide. And that's uh, that's a book I believe I um, I recommended that book quite a while back it's probably the best muskrat trapping book that's out there and she's looking going out and doing some scouting and looking at uh, some ponds and trying to figure out whether uh, she's looking at muskrat sign or not so she included a few pictures and I kind of was looking through those and and sorry Kristen I haven't quite got back to you yet I'm trying to find time to respond so I thought I'd just respond right here for now and uh there's ve- she she noticed a bunch of floating vegetation, and was wondering if that was muskrat sign. And just from looking at that picture, as far as I can tell, it looks like that a lot of that is probably uh, grass and shrub cuttings. It looks like maybe someone weed whacked or mowed over there, and that stuff blew or was washed into the pond. Uh, that just look is what it looks like from here. I can't. I can't quite tell from that picture uh, whether whether you're looking at that, but basically that typically is not going to be muskrat sign. What you're going to see for vegetation floating, look for roots, look for white. So there's going to be like white exposed root areas. What muskrats are doing is they're digging into the bank and they're digging in and trying to get that vegetation from the roots. And they're going to pull that out and they're going to chew on those roots and so you're going to see pieces of, you know, whether it's a cattail or some sort of a rush, they're they're going to be feeding on that, and the pieces that they discard or don't quite get to are going to be what's floating on the surface. So if you look at and see something, usually the vegetation is going to have a lot of white on it from being uh, near the near the surface of the ground or below the surface of the ground. It's not going to be as green. And uh, you're gonna see if when you you'll start to figure that out when you start to see more of that muskrat sign, and that could be some of what's in that picture. I I just can't quite tell from uh, what I can see, but but I would lean towards not being muskrat sign. She also included a couple of pictures that appear to be travelways through the lily pads in the water and through the other vegetation, and those could be beaver, otter, or muskrat. It's really hard to tell, uh, at least for me. Just looking at them, there's basically just a break in vegetation uh, at the water surface. The There's one there that it looks like you're standing on a bridge or something, taking that picture. That's pretty narrow and choked up. Uh, that would not be a place that beaver are using regularly because of the small size. That could be mink and muskrat traveling through there. 
It could also just be the, the velocity of the stream channel. I can't quite tell. Um, so, so it's hard to say. And then the other one in the pond between the lily pads, a lot of times when I see that, it's usually beaver that are making that, uh, that trail or that path. So that's kind of what I would lean towards there. Um, there's another little trail that comes in from land and is going, she took a picture from up in the grass and it's a break in the grass. That looks more like sort of a mink or a muskrat type of, of trail. So I'd investigate that a little more. But what you want to find here is the, the, the best way to confirm whether you're looking at muskrat sign is go right on the edge of the water. Um, either at an undercut bank or at a trail where the trail goes from the land to water where they're coming down you know going up from water onto land and you're gonna look in that trail you're gonna get yourself down to that muskrat's level where that muskrat would be looking and kind of look down that trail and look around on the ground or on anything that's popping out of the water for muskrat droppings and if you've just had a hard rain a lot of those are going to be washed away and you're going to see like a little brown a little bit of brown material that's kind of uh, on like a lot of times it's on rocks if you get a rock and, and you can actually do this if you think you're in a muskrat area and you can't see any sign take a rock right where that trail enters the water and maybe just off to the side of the trail a little bit and make sure that there's some vegetation overhanging it because the muskrats are looking for cover what they're doing is they're rooting around they're finding feed and then they bring that over to a spot they'll, a lot of times they'll make it into a little pile and that place will be a secluded an area that they have cover where they're near the water so they can escape from any land predators and they've got overhead cover so the birds can't see them uh, from above and that's where they will start feeding they'll do their nighttime feeding ritual and that's where they will deposit a lot of the droppings so like you said you're not going to have a lot of huts in that country it may be hard to find dens especially like you mentioned you're in sandy country so uh, maybe difficult to find dens um, if there are rats there there are going to be bank dens somewhere so uh, whether you know sometimes you can't find them a lot of times if you walk along the edge of the pond and you just keep looking looking you're going to see uh, a narrow run it's going to be six or eight inches wide and a few inches deep and, and that's going to be where your muskrats are moving through and usually if that run doesn't end on a, in a trail coming up on land it's going into a den underneath under the water. So those are things to look for but uh, before I get any confirmation to say there are rats there I would be looking for droppings for sure. I hope that helps Kristen keep looking around keep scouting you will find success I promise if uh, if you keep looking and and uh, and knowing what to look for so thanks again for that email the other one was from Kyle who's over in Minnesota and I thought this was really neat I don't know how this guy does it but he is 24 years old and he's bought uh, 40 acres in the Superior National Forest in Minnesota and he built a log cabin on it he has a YouTube channel called Kyle's Cabin where he documents building the cabin and he's going to spend the winter in that cabin he plans to live off the grid and do a bunch of trapping so he just found the podcast and been listening through ever since and I really enjoyed it and I really enjoy that story Kyle when I get a few minutes I'm going to sit down and watch some of those YouTube videos I'm excited to follow along with your journey and be sure to let me know if there's anything, any questions that you have, and I'll try to answer them here if I have some of the answers or point you in the right direction. So good luck out there trapping. 
It's Kyle's first season ever as a trapper, and uh, I'm excited to hear more from him. All right. So, with that, I have one more thing I want to mention. My uh, tanned Martin and Fisher pelts. If you haven't heard before, I sent off all of my Martin Fisher pelts that I caught last year to be tanned. And I have them back, and I've sold several, and I have a bunch more that I have not sold. And I haven't mentioned it a lot on the podcast, so I think the next few weeks I'm going to be mentioning this to try to see if any of you are interested, if you want to buy a pelt. So perhaps you don't have Martin or Fisher in the area that you trap, or you don't have the opportunity to trap them. Perhaps you don't do a whole lot of trapping and so you don't have any. Maybe you sell all your fur and you'd like to get a pelt uh, to hang on the wall. This could be that opportunity. Or maybe you just like listened along to the podcast last fall and early winter when I talked about my trap line and all the ups and downs and the adventures that I had there. And you think maybe it'd be pretty cool to have a pelt from that trap line. For any of those reasons, you want to buy a Martin Fisher pelt. Maybe you got a little store and you want to resell, uh, hang it up uh, in the store and try to resell it to some tourists or something. I don't know. Either way, I have Martin pelts available for $75 shipped to your door and Fisher pelts for $100. And uh, that's probably as cheap as you're going to find, especially for these quality of pelts. These were caught in mid to late November through mid-December. So very high quality, thick prime pelts. And if you are someone who doesn't have a lot of money and you're looking for something at a little discounted rate, I have uh, two or three of the Martin pelts that I'd send you for 40 bucks because they maybe have a little missing patch of fur somewhere or a small rip or tear in the pelt, something like that. So get in touch with me, jrodwood at gmail.com. That's J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. If you'd like to buy a pelt, it would be greatly appreciated. And don't forget my book, Fur Profit, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market, if you want to learn more about the fur market and get your start. All right, that's it. Let's talk with J.P. Wilson. J.P. is a trapper from upstate New York. He has spent a lot of time trapping there and out of state, particularly in New Mexico. He's a young trapper, but a very, very experienced one. He's been lure making for years In this episode, we're going to talk with JP about how he got started trapping, uh, trapping with guys like Neil Olson and Paul Grimshaw as a young man. We get into the lure making business and talk a little bit about scent control. So that's uh, the kind of first interview we'll do. And next week, we'll talk primarily with JP about trapping out of state in his trips to New Mexico and, uh, and go from there. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy. JP Wilson, it's good to have you here. Good to talk with you. <laughs> We're is. sitting here at Neil Olson's New England Trappers Weekend, me, Cole, and JP, um, and uh, just got done a nice day of demos. I finally got my tent dried out. I got soaked last Rain this morning. Rain pretty good last night. Yeah, this morning when that rain started, like around three o'clock. Um, it turns out after 10 years of good service, uh, the 11th year was not, uh, this tent just didn't have it in it. So this was leaking at the seams and I had water pouring into my face. And, not enough you know. silicone spray. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So JP, uh, I'm glad it was good to get the chance to, uh, 
to get you on here. Um, uh, last couple of years, been watching your demos and and talking with you a little bit, and and uh, it's uh, it's it's fun. You're not that old. No, not <laughs> not really. Twenty seven. And you've um, done a fair bit of trapping in those years. Yeah, yeah. I got into it when I was <clears throat> thirteen. Um, well, I guess when I was twelve or so um, is when I was interested in it. Bought my first. Uh, was a number two herders at this little spot. It's like a one of those summer long yard sales that just never stops. And they had a number two herders for two dollars. And I begged my dad to get it, and uh, he said yes. And we were on our way to our camp, and then. As soon as I got there, my grandparents were there, and then the stories come out about how my dad used to trap, and my grandfather used to trap, and <clears throat> then all of a sudden, the old uh, number one Blake and Lamb jumps come out of the shed that I never <laughs> even knew were at, at the camp, and um, it all just kind of happened from there. It's amazing how many times you talk to people and it just started with a trap. Yeah. It's kind of that way for me. It was a number two uh, Victor Double Long Spring hanging in the garage. Yeah. Um, some guy had, had gone my some guy had taken my dad trapping when he was younger and when they got done they're out beaver trapping through the ice and he got done and gave my dad the trap and my dad never trapped never set that trap but it was hanging on the wall and I used to see that all the time man every time I walk by that I wish I could trap I want to be a trapper yeah yeah so you're from New York yep um upstate New York um in uh Pretty much uh, a half an hour I can be in Canada, or half an hour I can be in Vermont, right in that northeast corner of the state. Yeah. And, and how long after you got that herder strap that you, you started catching fur? Um, <clears throat> well, it took about a year. Um, I had the trap. I was interested in it. Uh, it, was, it was a number two coil. I tried to catch squirrels and stuff, but the spring tension was too much, obviously, to to catch a squirrel. Um, I did live trap a couple coons over the summer, um, you know, out of bird feeders and stuff like that. Um, and then I did my trapper's training course, had to go buy the book and all that stuff. My grandfather was uh, always been big by the book, which is not a bad thing, but yep. no trapping without the trapping license. I was able to do the nuisance coon stuff, I guess, but, um, so yeah, when I was 13, I guess is when it actually started. When I actually started setting traps and handling fur, and and who who was the person that taught you and got you into it? Did you kind of um, tried worked on things yourself, or did you have a mentor? Uh, my dad and grandfather uh, helped me out a lot. Uh, at that time, my dad lived about 15 minutes from Paul Grimshaw, and right on. I every weekend I begged and begged him and pretty much uh, Sunday Saturday or Sunday um, we were at Paul's and it was never a five-minute visit it was, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'd get in there and <clears throat> my dad would just drop me off you know after after the first couple months or so um, he, he knew what I was going there for it wasn't to buy anything I, I might buy something yeah but it was it was just to pick Paul's ear and he never cared he was always happy to have me there yeah um like i said my dad would drop me off and he'd come back three hours later and 
beg him to go find something else to do, you know, <laughs> so, I, so I could stay. Yeah. Um, so Paul taught me a lot. Um, I would say that he's definitely who really helped me out in the beginning. And I mean, uh, even when I wasn't at his store, probably annoying the crap out of him. Uh, I used to call him during the week if I had any questions. Um, I had a hard time catching my first mink and it was uh, just question after question and phone calls and weekends there and <laughs> <laughs> but it all it all worked out but he was a, a huge help to me in the beginning. You remember your first catch? Uh, yeah I do. The first the first animal that I ever caught with my uh, trapping, Officially. Yeah, and my trapping <laughs> license, no nuisance stuff or whatever, was a, a raccoon on a running pole set, or leaning pole, whatever you prefer yep. to call it. Um, and then uh, uh, my dad owned three acres that bordered, uh, I think it was like 6,000 acres of state land. Nice. Or some, something like that. It was a ridiculous amount. And uh, he doesn't live there anymore, but there was a brook that ran through it, and it was it was a walking trap line right from the backyard and uh, awesome. that first year I caught four fishers, a few coons, the one mink that I was the most proud of. <laughs> yeah. um, the one mink. What did it take? Uh, what kind of set did it take to catch that? I I built a rock cubby that was probably suitable for a human to live in. <laughs> yeah, it was a full eight-hour day. Nice. Yeah. And that number two herders though. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I that's what I used. Um, but yeah, it took me uh, forever, but it was, like I said, it, it was a nice, nice rock cubby. Yeah. But with a, uh, muskrat carcass wired underneath the roof rock or whatever you want to call it. But, um, yeah, I'll never, never forget that one. Yeah. It's hard um, to forget. Yeah. So, so you kind of progressed, um, was the, was it a fast progression from there into being, you know, just just trapping steady throughout the season uh um it would did something trigger that i know you start coming here at some point around then yeah um well after that my first year you know catching a handful of muskrats and beavers and uh the minks and fishers uh just a handful of everything that first year that spring um i was still at paul grimshaw's every chance i could get and uh it was March and the ice was just starting to go out and um, he told me that uh, Neil Olson was coming over from Maine who I had never met at that point and uh, they were going to be trapping beavers and if I wanted to I was more than welcome to come along so I jumped at the opportunity and uh, <clears throat> I got to go with them and I learned a ton of stuff and uh, I ended up I think I went with them a total of four days. Uh, it worked out where um, our spring break in April when I was in school, uh, the beaver season used to go until uh, April 15th in St. Lawrence County only. Okay. And that's where we'd leave from Paul's house and we would drive all the way to St. Lawrence County from Clinton County, which is about, I would say that it must have taken us 45 minutes or so yep. before you could even start checking traps that there was really? like that late season line yep. where you could get one more week out of it huh. and uh so we would make that drive and just i'm for a 13 year old kid that was obsessed with trapping oh, man, i can't that must have been awesome i 
I'm surprised Neil even still talks to me today because I must have drove <laughs> I must have drove both of them nuts with the amount of questions. Um, w- was this when the guardrail incident happened? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Neil, Neil told me about that last year. Yeah, <laughs> you got to tell tell us about that one. Um, so, <clears throat> I bel- it was the first day, um, and it was cold. Uh, the ice had started to go out, and the beavers were starting to move pretty good. Um, but we had a cold night, and I remember waking up at my dad's house. And I think that we, I think that I had to wake up at four thirty to be over at Paul's house in time yeah. and all that stuff. Um, and I remember it being 17 degrees that morning. So real frosty, cold spring morning, especially for April. And, uh, (laughs) so it was the first stop and I could drive you to that bridge today. I know exactly where it is. I'll never forget it. Uh, so I walked down, I walked down over the bank. They were at a spot where they didn't have permission exactly but nobody told them that they couldn't be there either but it's early in the morning i mean it's not even quite daylight out yet and kind of road right away kind of deal yeah uh so um there is a house fairly close by and the dog is barking freaking out because somebody pulled up and is down in the brook right there I walked over with Paul. I, didn't, I had no clue who Neil was. I mean, I met him. He was pretty quiet, which is anybody that knows Neil. Neil's not <laughs> quiet at all. But he was pretty quiet that morning, the whole ride up. So I was, you know, 13 years old, a little cautious around him. I walked down over the bank with Paul. Paul didn't catch anything, but Neil had a beaver on his side. So Paul said, why don't you run over and help Neil carry that beaver up the bank? So I, you know, run over. Yep. No big deal. Pretty big beaver. I'm, I don't know, 40, 50 pounds, but that dead weight carrying it up the bank. And I didn't think anything of it. I'm exhausted by the time I get to the top of the bank. I lay that beaver down on top of the guardrail. <laughs> I climb over the other side. I grab it by one front foot and a back foot and go to pick it up. Stuck. Stuck right there. <laughs> uh, I'd never been so embarrassed, ashamed. <laughs> I, every word in the book that you can think of, I couldn't even believe it. And... Uh, I, I was speechless. I didn't even know what to say. Like I couldn't even. You felt like you destroyed his beaver. Yeah, and to me at that time, like this is you know even it, it is a lot of work regardless. But back then it was it was an even bigger deal. It's not like it was not a ten dollar. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so uh, <laughs> the dog is barking, and Paul's hollering to me. Put the beaver in the truck, JP. Come on, we gotta go. Put the beaver in the truck. We gotta get I'm out of here. Stuck to the guardrail. Uh, I just hollered back, I can't, and it was the only, <laughs> was the only thing that I could get out. And uh, Neil came up to the top of the bank and asked me what was wrong, and uh, <laughs> I said it must have frosted to the guardrail. And, and Neil took his hand and just swiped out from underneath it, and it left us. The back of that beaver looked like it had been sheared. <laughs> eight inches wide <laughs> about 18 inches down and i'm pretty much distraught you know here i am trying to learn something from these legends and i'm this is what i do to them. Uh, i'm uh, not quite in tears but i'll pay for it i'll pay for it i'll pay for it you know and uh no no it's not that big of a deal and um that that was how the first day went felt terrible learned a lot did everything that i could trying to help and uh they invited me back for a second day, so then I figured it couldn't have been too bad. 
And uh, then the second day, um, when we got back, Paul said, well, do you want to stay for dinner too? And I said, only if I can help skin. And they said, well, you could have stayed last night if you would have helped skin. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that was awesome. And then, uh, and then I, Paul had some stuff that he had to do because he was uh, still in the trap and supply business. Oh, yeah. Yep. So he had a bunch of stuff that he had to catch up on. And normally he would do that one day a week, at least one day a week, where Neil would uh, run the traps by himself. And... Uh, so that day came around and Paul called me and said, hey, do you want to ride with Neil? And I said, absolutely. So that's kind of how Neil and I got to build our relationship because I ended up going with Neil a couple of days um, just by ourselves. But, and that's how you ended up coming here to, to this Trapper's Week? Yeah, Neil, um, uh, it was pretty much that, right around that time riding through them that I, at that point I decided that I wanted to make lure. I wanted to trap and run these long lines. You're 13, 14 years old. Yeah, 13. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, Neil told me about his trappers convention and um, you know told me how many people came and how big it was and everything and something that some you know a 13 year old kid can't really fathom until they get here. Right. And uh, yeah, when I when I finally did get here that year, it was like you know in complete shock and then i i met johnny thorpe here yeah um and that was like the same thing with paul i just followed him around the whole weekend yeah and uh i had actually that year i was making lures and uh and i like i said i learned a bunch from paul and uh, i had like three or four lures in a bait that i was selling here at a card table right in the sun you know no tent no anything but yeah um boy that must have been hard yeah <laughs> How many people took you seriously at that age? Um, well, the first year that I was here, I re I stuck my dad at that card table, and I just followed Johnny Thorpe around. <laughs> so, nice. uh, I mean, I did sell a few bottles of lure, but it was pretty much my dad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got stuck with it because I was I was all over the place. It was it was just too much for a, a thirteen year old kid that. Yep. You're just so soaking interested. everything in. Yeah. Um, and and then after that. Um, I learned a lot more about lure making through Johnny, and uh, then the second year when I came back, then it was it was more like a business. I mean, even at 14 years old, like I I had typewriter labels the first year, um, you know, made made batches in the little cleaned out uh, pickle jars, yeah. uh, and then the following year it was uh, it was a whole different whole different thing. It was a little bit more professional, even for uh, a 14 year old kid. <laughs> but, yeah. And, and were you, you sold lures pretty steady from then until a couple year or two ago? Uh, yeah, La last year, um, between work and um, just everything, um, the business had grown to a point where it was started taking some time away from all the other stuff that I like to do. I like to go out of state and trap. Um, that was getting not impossible to do, but you had to have everything lined up to you know, try to leave it for somebody to pack orders and uh, somebody to, you know, answer the phone. The other thing, too, was a lot of times where I was out there, if, if somebody called me for an order, I was, then I had to relay that order from there. And, uh, you know, cell phone reception was an issue. And it just, uh, it's not like my business was ever huge by any means, but it was to the point where I... It was I, a lot better than when you first started. Though. Yeah, you, yeah. I just... 
um, you know, I didn't like having to uh, put people off for a couple days or whatever it was. And it was to the point where I just couldn't manage it the way that I really wanted to. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I still, I still have every, everything. I've got gallons of lure. I'm sure that one day I will do it again once I have more time. Yeah. I, I don't know when that'll be, but uh, I haven't sold any formulas or anything like that. It's all, I haven't sold the business. It's all, it's not going anywhere. It's just, I'm not. You're not hurt. advertising. You're still making it for yourself, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. I've got a few people that have bought stuff for years and years, that customers that have turned into friends um, that I still make stuff for, but yeah. just on a, a private basis pretty much now. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, that that's probably the best reason you could have for going out of a business. More time with your family and you want to trap more. Yeah. Exactly. How could it be any better? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, I love doing it and I still play with it even, uh, even now, but it was, uh, I just wanted it to, you know, I couldn't give it the time. Like I felt like the business deserved. So, yeah. So how, how did you progress as a lure maker? Like working with those guys and you, you're probably making a bunch of tests, batches of lures and figuring things out. And, and um, it's, uh, I used to bring stuff to conventions with me when I was first getting started. And um, I, the first two years, I probably gave away more lure than what I actually sold. Yeah. You know, just looking for feedback. Um, yeah. uh, guys that did, you know, known for putting up big numbers. Um, was it hard to convince them to, to use it? No. A lot of guys have their, their lure kind of set and that's what they use. Yeah. Um, some were. Um, I don't know, my age is probably, whether they used it or not, they took it, you know, right, yeah. <laughs> but, um, being yeah. as young as I was, I think that they were more supportive, you know, this is kind of, uh, that's, yeah. it's an older industry, you know, you look at all the supply dealers and, um, there's very few that are, uh, you know, young, I mean, bulk of them, I would say have got to be, you know, fifties or older, yep. but I think that that did help me some but yeah cole was the youngest person at one of those demos yeah um today that one of the old timers was doing that was doing the beaver trapping he said man there's he's there looking might, around he said been one one younger i want to <laughs> he, he said uh there can't be anybody less than 30 35 years here and i was looking at i was <laughs> looking at you <laughs> yeah but yep. uh, so so i kind of have been over time developing my own theory on how I feel lures work and how important or unimportant specific lure formulas are. Do you have a general philosophy or thoughts on, on lures in general? Like, like, is there a magic secret formula that's going to out trap every other lure or is the exact opposite of that? I mean, um, even, even when I was selling lures, I would, during my demo, I always explain that um, since I've been going to New Mexico, I'm on the same four ounce bottle of Coyote Gland Lure that I started with out there. That's how much I use lure. Really? And I, I do use it at every set, but that is, the amount wise is how much I use. Okay. Uh, I sell lure, so I'm not a good salesman <laughs> right off the bat because when people come by and they're like, you know, give me two four ounce bottles of that and they come back and buy it every year and I'm thinking to myself, are you eating it? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing with this stuff? But I mean, it's, 
obviously for somebody that's selling lure, it's a good thing to sell a lot of lure, but I've, I've always been able to use small amounts and have had good success. It's, I kept track of it one year. I used to sell a lure called the uh, Saranac Sav. And uh, with a one ounce bottle, I was still in school and I caught $750 worth of fur. At that time, that was a $4 bottle, <laughs> bottle of lure. Yeah. So cost-wise, you know, when, when the, that was right about the time when lures started to go up. Yeah. That's why I did that, just to, you know, try to prove a point that, um, you know, for, compared to the other stuff that you spend money on, lures such a cheap investment for what it does for you. If you don't dump the whole ounce bottle at once. Exactly, yeah. So you think in general trappers probably over lure or is that a too general of a statement? Uh, it's it's hard. I guess if it, whatever works for you, I would say, you know, if uh, I remember Paul Grimshaw telling me that um, there used to be a kid down the street um, from his shop and he'd catch a fox and he would buy a whole bottle a one ounce bottle of red fox lure from paul he would dump it down the dirt hole the whole thing he'd catch another fox another bottle of lure so paul said those are the customers that i want <laughs> but um yeah it's uh it's i guess everybody has their own way of doing stuff and that's yeah that's really all that matters but as far as any you know is there that secret lure or does one thing one thing work better than another um this was another thing that i've always done at my demos is i've always told people it's the location it's not necessarily the lure you can uh if you have eye appeal on that location you probably catch them without the lure if you have the lure um the as long as it interests them you'll definitely you know between lure and eye appeal you're gonna you're going to catch them as long as you're on location, but you can put that lure in a spot that has no coyotes and it's doesn't matter how much you put. Yeah, exactly. You can, you can dump a, a, that whole one ounce <laughs> bottle there, but you aren't going to catch, you know, it's, um, I've, and I've always told people that even, you know, they'd come up and say, I'm, I'm looking for a fisher lure and certain parts of where I'm at in the Adirondacks is almost has no fisher in it at all anymore. Really? And uh, they say, well, I'm looking for a good fisher lure, something that'll really call them in. And From 20 miles away? Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, there's, uh, you can catch a fisher with anything. You know, yeah. you need, location is like the, the biggest factor with a fisher. So uh, you can dump a four ounce bottle of pure quail skunk essence if there's no fisher around, they're not coming. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. So that's, uh, and that's, I've always tried to tell people that the lure is only as good as the spot that you put it in. It's kind of like a, it's a backup to your, to your location, to your IOPL. It's, it's just an, it's another tool that you have in that bag of tricks that you carry around in the back of the trapping truck, you know? Yeah. So, so you're like the type, the amount of lure you'll apply, like you'll put a dip a stick in, pull it out and whatever sticks to that. Yeah, and then sometimes I'll wipe off the glob on the end. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but that, and that's what I've always told people too though. I never tried to, you know. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely guilty of overluring, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah but it, so I mean some guys there's guys that you know have have put up way way bigger numbers than what I have and um 
I know guys that um, a pint jar of bait will only do four sets. So yeah. it's all in what you want to do. Yeah. Um, uh, I do use, I guess, a fair amount of bait. I'll go through a gallon in a month if I'm um, predator trapping in New Mexico um, with, you know, a lot of remakes and stuff like that. Yeah. But as far as the lure goes, very minimal. You've got some pretty interesting theories on, on scent control, too. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to a little bit of your demo today and that uh, had a lot of questions. It has been amazing, the demos that we've watched today. The fox, the coyote, fox and coyote demos have had... They were not specific to, like, that we were thinking. Well, I'm thinking number of questions. Oh. Like, how many questions did you field? 50? Yeah. It's just incredible. And there were other demos that's like, at the end, nobody had any questions. But but the two or three fox and coyote ones was just boom, 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 boom. Use this, use that. Yeah. How do you do so, my, so you, you I had to start right. my question and answer, though. I, I don't know if you were there from the beginning or not, but uh, I did a question and answer demo. And uh, I had no questions. Oh, really? I, didn't, so I, I missed the, fir the first one. So I just it. started out with facts and kept going and trying to... Yeah, trying to spark some, something out of yeah. somebody, and then about halfway through, I finally started getting some questions. And they started <laughs> rolling in. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so, so scent control. What are your thoughts on scent and traps and all that? Um, I'm, I'm never been a big believer in, uh, you know, the logwood dye and the wax, and um, you absolutely have to wear gloves and, um changing traps out you know all your traps have to be clean um it's i don't know i always i always thought to myself that uh any of these any of these predators that are out there they walk over more metal in a day you know stone walls and just all kinds of stuff that's buried in the ground and all the uh all the deer hunters that there are especially here in the east i'm I mean, i'm sure everywhere there's you know yeah there's people throwing scent down everywhere yeah. yeah um it's just the coyotes and foxes and all, all the predators associate so much good with humans yeah you know food yeah maybe they associate more good than bad with humans i mean yeah it's uh i don't think it's really that that big of an issue i uh um I don't get concerned about, you know, gloves or any of that stuff. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a huge believer in, uh, you know, brushing my tracks out at a set or yeah. any of that stuff. Um, number of traps, miles covered is a lot. That's a lot more concerning to me than, yeah. you Yeah, know, you mentioned today that I could spend time fixing this setup and doing this and putting that coyote, that fox print footprint on the yeah it, or i could just go make another set yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <coughs> yeah um uh, yeah. but and some you know i do uh like when i was trapping with neil olson um neil oh, always yeah, you're said, messing with him a little bit huh yeah <laughs> yeah about the about the scent uh you know he was like in complete shock that i uh uh wasn't wearing gloves when i was uh hooking a cable stake on the trap with a j-hook and just couldn't couldn't even fathom it you know so i just as, as when we were trapping out there i just tried to push his buttons and 
pretty much every way that I could do just to try to prove that yeah. it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. And if we do happen to get a smart one, we'll just go down the road a little ways. You're not trapping for those. Yeah. We're, trapping for the, we're the not, numbers. We, we can't eradicate them out here. So we might as well just move on, you know, if, if it comes to that. Um, and out of all the years when I was mainly focusing on coyotes out there, um, for the first few years that I trapped, um, after the third year, I had one spot that I can remember where I had a coyote that was giving me a real hard time out there to the point where I said, you know what? I, I can catch five or six more down the road. I don't need to remake this set every day. So that's, that's exactly what I did. But it is frustrating. And it is, it is really rewarding when you finally do catch that coyote. But it gets to a certain point where... It, what are you there for? To catch yeah. that one or are you there to catch numbers? Exactly, yeah. It's interesting. There's a there's kind of a paradigm shift between the old generation and the new generation, and really we got to think about back when they were trapping, there were so many trappers out there. They were killing a lot of fur, and the ones that were left for a lot of guys to trap for were those smart ones. Yeah. So it's not we're not saying that they were wrong back then. We're saying that it's not necessary now. Right. When Russ Carmen in the '70s was doing that fox trapping and and was all about you know just scent control everything rubber and the clothes stay outside and doing all that probably was necessary at the yeah. time one thing for sure though it doesn't hurt to be conscious about it right it does not hurt one thing that's the it's definitely the old school way and if you know i wouldn't expect somebody that's been trapping for 45 years neil does, all of a sudden just switch and just yeah completely yeah. neil still has his rubber gloves and all that stuff even after trapping with me i did you know he does look at stuff a little bit differently now but i didn't change his ways uh, yeah. i wasn't trying to i was just you know trying to show him this is how i do stuff and it still works yeah but there yeah. is there's definitely no rules to this whole this whole thing part of me wonders if like 30 years from now we're gonna be like the guys that are like oh you don't have to worry about that and maybe you actually do have to worry about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, just the opposite now. <laughs> we'll be those old guys. I'm not changing what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> these young guys are all catching all the coyotes. 